everybody. Welcome to episode six of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina, uh, with a special focus on the SCG Tour. We are your hosts. I'm Chris Castor-Rappel, and with me, as always, is SCG leaderboard mainstay, Collins Mullen, fresh off of a top 17 open finish. <laughs> Oof. Ouch. <laughs> but yeah, it's true. 17th place. Uh, it feels good, and it also feels kind of bad, you know? Felt pretty good about the weekend, so can't complain. Well, top 17 is very close to top 16. Uh, <laughs> pain, painfully close. I don't... I'm sorry. I shouldn't shouldn't emphasize it that much, I guess. Um, no, no, you, no. It's great. It's great. <laughs> uh, so yeah. you, you played the Scapeshift deck that we talked about last I did. weekend. Uh, pretty much card for card, um, which was interesting. I normally I, I tend to try to like really really tune it and make a lot of changes and everything but the deck list I registered for Cincinnati was actually just one card off of the deck list that I just threw together and was testing online the deck itself didn't really go through many changes which was kind of like a unique experience for me well, it's so up. linear it's it, it, it becomes difficult to make changes to the main deck once you're all in on yeah, that ramp plan. Right. Um, yeah, and the one thing that I think suffered from that was that I threw the guy to the sideboard and I tweaked it a little bit like in the initial process, but once I had that 15 card sideboard, I didn't really mess with it too much because mm -hmm. I just kept on having success with it online. Right. But I think that after the tournament experience, there are a lot of things that I know now that I can change about the sideboard that we'll definitely get into in a little bit. So yeah, for those for of sure. you who did not... Uh, listen to our last episode or who didn't see the deck tech uh, on Reddit, this is basically just a super aggressive scapeshift deck, all ramp spells, uh, four hour of promise, uh, colony hard expeditions, and just kill oh, the yes. Valica as hard as it possibly can. Yeah, it's yeah, it's essentially taking the concept of uh, you want to be as proactive as possible in modern. Uh, it takes that concept to a very extreme where it's not interacting at all. It's just uh, mono green ramp spells and payoff spells main deck. With a bunch of mountains. With a uh, yeah, mono green mountains. That's just that's just how it how it was originally intended, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> this is definitely yeah. a just like Richard Garfield drew it up deck. I think. Oh yeah, oh yeah, for sure. Uh, the deck was great for me. I think that I'm even not changing anything from the main deck going into Richmond this weekend. Sure. It's just the sideboard that I think now that I have the knowledge that I have after a tournament experience, I'm going to be able to tune much more accurately. I guess just tell us about how the tournament went. So yeah, I had two buys at the tournament, so that was definitely a plus. And then I played two rounds that just went very easily. I'm struggling to remember what I played against in the first couple of rounds, but they were like traditional. I think I made a play against like Affinity and then maybe Jund or something. Mm -hmm. And then after the fourth round, Nick Miller came up to me and he was like, hey, I heard you're playing the sweet Hour of Devastation, or an Hour of Promise Scapeshift deck. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you want to do a deck tech. And I was like, yes, that would be amazing. Um, <laughs> So I did that and talked all about the deck, and you can check that out um, on Star City's website if you want. But then I just kept kept on winning with the deck, and it just kind of felt kind of how it had felt on Magic Online, where um, my main deck was just like doing the same very, very powerful, very, very consistent thing every time. And then I was able to bring in like the appropriate interactive pieces for the appropriate matchups. And then I ran against, I think in round seven, I played against... A, the Merfolk player who ended up going like 13 and 0 um, mm -hmm. in the tournament. So spoilers, uh, he crushed me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think that the uh, the things that I want to talk about in the Scapeshift deck is that there are definitely very bad matchups 
um, that come from not interacting at all in the main deck. Sure. One of those things is is Merfolk. I think your game one is actually better than the average game one against Merfolk, despite not having the interactive pieces, just because you're so much faster than the average Titan Shift deck. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was Daniel Duffy that top aided with the Merfolk deck. Yes, yeah, yeah, Daniel Duffy, awesome. I was gonna look him up in just a second, but thanks. Yeah, and he was he was a great guy, um, and I beat him game one, just because I was able to kill him on turn four, and they don't really pay any interaction like right. they don't have any i think that he had some vanilla clicks in the main but that was like his only way of interacting with me pre-board right it's so mostly it's a pile of of muscle slivers he does have spreading yeah. c's though like that's definitely a way to interact oh yeah with you. Sure. but uh, i think that i he, he i think that he like spreading sees me or something and then i just like ramped into seven mana and cast escape shift and sure. he died sure yeah i think that the game one played out as i would expect it to against merfolk where i got seven lands i cast escape shift I like wiped his board and then I like cast a primeval titan the next turn and it was just over. Yeah. Murfolk doesn't really take any damage, so my 18 damage wasn't killing him, but my 18 damage was definitely enough to clear away all of the all of his permanents essentially. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um but post board gets really bad for uh me as he brings in like negates and um unified wills and just all these interactive pieces that uh, um, and accompanied by a clock, uh, it's very hard for me to interact with. So I, I was able to like bring in the bolts and the angers and everything, but I just wasn't able to close it out through the disruption plus clock. Yeah, um, the the clock is a really key part of it because the deck kind yeah. of just gets there eventually. I think that if he had a draw that didn't involve Aether Vial, mm-hmm. um, I think that I would have easily beaten him. But games two and three, he had Aether Vial in turn one and then just held up two lands for the rest of the game and just kind of like, you know, put in a Silvergill and then put in a Lord and then put in another Lord and then negated my anger and then killed me on the next turn. Oof. So, which is like a very reasonable curve for him to have and I think why it's probably a bad matchup overall. But, right, uh, right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and then I finished out the day 8-1. I beat Tom Ross in the last round of day one. Um, he was playing black-white smallpox. Yeah, that deck got on camera a couple of times. and Yeah, yeah, because it's A, it's Tom, and B, it's kind of a sweet deck. It is. The matchup, that matchup played out pretty much how I expected, where he disrupted me a lot, but I just focused on making land drops, and then all of my draws were alive to kill him, and I was able to just kind of, like, rip a titan or rip something that killed him. I think it got a Liliana down both games, but um, you know, even with that plusing every turn, I was able to get up to enough mountains so that like uh, I could like any of my draws would like bolt Liliana, so I could just like draw land, bolt Liliana, draw land, bolt Liliana again, Liliana dead, and then any of my draws past that are just like if I ever draw a scape shift or anything like that, he doesn't have anything that interacts with that after I just draw it off the top and slam it. Right. So and my deck is just so dense with things that kill him that I, I figured it was probably going to be a really good matchup for me. And yeah, it proved- I felt similar. I played a couple of matches against 8-Rack online, yeah. and it just it, it felt really miserable for them, I think. Yeah, right, because, like, sure, they can get you down to zero cards, but you your deck is designed to be playing off the top in a certain way where, like, you know, if you get some Balakids in play, then you can just deal them damage with anything and then finish them off with whatever you happen to draw off the top. Yeah, definitely. Uh, although, one sweet play was that... Uh, <laughs> I get up to six lands, and then I ripped a Primeval Titan off the top, and I slammed it, 
and he manatized manatized you. Yeah, he was getting people (laughs) all day. Oh man. but like it didn't really matter. He had no pressure at that point, and I was just able to draw another thing and kill him with it. But I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, that is actually one one really cool thing that I liked. You know, even if I wouldn't play Tom Ross's deck exactly, I'd like <laughs> the combination of mana tithe with various mana denial things, whether that's tech edges and thalias or or whatever. Oh yeah, sure. Mana tithe is definitely much better when your opponent only has like one or two lands. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe not quite as good against the uh, the all ramp spell deck, but um, <laughs> but he got you because uh, he didn't know. But hey, I mean, he found a spot for it, so kudos. Right. Um, but and it... I I had heard that he was playing Manatide, so I kind of knew about it. Hmm. Um, but I had like I can't remember. I had like two Titans in hand or something, and it just didn't matter. So gotcha. I just slammed it. So eight and uh, one day one exactly where you want to be. Yeah, eight and one is kind of as good as you can ask for, really. Like nine and zero oh is definitely better, but. Like, you know, if I could go into every day two at eight and one, then I would def- I would snap that off in a heartbeat. So um, <laughs> it just gives really good. It gives you a really good shot at like making top eight the next day. Yeah. Um, so that's awesome. Um, yeah. And then so day two, I immediately ran into Storm the first day of day two right, or the idea. first round of day two. I knew that that matchup was bad. I had defeated it on Magic Online before, but it just never felt good. And I think that me defeating it was more me just having an insane draw and killing them on turn four when they stumbled or them like stumbling and then me being able to like bolt their dudes with my land drops or something. Sure. Um, but uh, my round 10 did not go as smoothly and my opponent killed me on turn three or four, both games. Um, and there just wasn't much I could do about it. I think that I definitely chalked that up to just a bad matchup in Modern. I wasn't disappointed to have bad matchups in Modern. I knew that that was just going to be the case. Like, Modern's such a wide format that you're going to have some matchups that are like 20%. Um, but I do think that there are definitely things in my sideboard that I can do to help that. Um, and I think one of the important concepts and one of the things that I learned out of this tournament was that I had things in my sideboard like Shatterstorm and Crumbled to Dust, Chameleon Colossus, which were all like very, very good in the matchups that I know they're going to be good in. Mm-hmm. But I think that I should have taken a step back and realized that those matchups are already favored for me. I already think that Affinity is a good matchup for me. I think that any Tron variant is a good matchup for me. Um, I think the Death Shadow is probably fine. So I don't really think that I needed those bullets as much as I needed to hedge on the matchups that I knew were going to be bad. Sure. And those bad matchups, as I discovered, were the other linear combo decks that don't really interact with you at all. So those decks include Storm, um, like the the blue-red gift Storm that exists right now. Mm-hmm. Um, Ad Nauseam, I think, is probably a very bad matchup for you. Um, and then uh, the other deck that I played against, actually, on day one and somehow defeated was uh, Goria's Vengeance Through the Breach. Yeah. Um, where they just, like, don't, you know, they're they're trying to kill you in turn three as well, and they just don't interact at all with you. I think that those are all, like, pretty bad matchups, and I think there are definitely cards that I can put in my sideboard to shore those matchups up, and I'm definitely willing to take out at least the Crumble to Dust. Yeah, definitely Probably the Crumble to Dust. The, That's one yeah, card in the sideboard. Yeah, the Crumble to Dust. Yep. Yeah, I played against a Tron player on day two, and I, like boarded in one card real quick and just like took out a Farseek or something and it was the Crumble to Dust and that's all I wanted. And then I, I was thinking about it, I was like, wow, this card just doesn't matter at all. Yeah, like, I don't care. Just up a slot in my sideboard and just an excellent matchup already. Right. Um, it's so hard to lose this so, round. Yeah, for sure. 
the the guy even asked me. He was like, "Did you sideboard at all?" And I was like, uh, "I'm not gonna tell you, but not really." <laughs> <laughs> I I mean, I guess finish giving us the story of the tournament, and then I think we should talk about what those you know yeah. what what you're thinking of putting in the sideboard. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I lost to Storm. And then I think I won my next round. And then the round after that, I played against a Burn player. And Burn is a matchup that's, I think, close. But I think that we're generally favored. I think Burn's Goldfish is turn four to five. And our Goldfish is pretty consistently turn four. Mm -hmm. And then post-board, I think that you are definitely favored against Burn because they're, th they're bringing in things like Path to Exile and you're bringing in things like Obstinate Bailoff and, and Bolt's Inner. Lightning Bolt, yeah. So I think that Burn's probably a favorable matchup. But I I ended up punting game one pretty hard in a way that I probably shouldn't have. So the scenario looked a little like this. He has a suspended Rift Bolt and an Eidolon out, and I'm at six. And he's got like three cards in hand behind. And he's got two mana up. So I'm very dead next turn. I just I just know for a fact that I'm gonna die next turn. So going into my turn, I have a suspended Search from tomorrow coming off, and I have four lands in play that have two green sources. And my hand is Hour of Promise, Titan, Scapeshift, Secure Tribe Elder. So I know going into this turn that I have to win this turn. Yes. Like if I deal him 18 damage, he's dead. So I know that my only out to win this game is to like get the suspend off. So that would be my fifth land. I have to draw a land for turn that's mm -hmm. untapped, and then I can go Secure Tribe Elder. Scapeshift. Back it, scapeshift, 18 damage, kill you, mm -hmm. right? Um, and if I don't do that and I'm just casting Hour of Promise or Titan, I'm just going to lose because he's just going to burn me out the next turn. Right. And I have two green sources in play at this point, and when I search for my for my land off of the suspended search from tomorrow, I like double-check my hand, and I just like instinctively see that I have an Hour of Promise and a Titan in play, mm -hmm. or in my hand. And when that's the case, you want to get as many mountains as possible. Yep. But just like snapped off a mountain for my search. And then I drew for turn, and it was another mountain. Mm. Um, if keeping track, then I only had two green sources in play. So I can't make the play of Sakura Tribe Elder right. into Escape Shift. So if I just like understood rationally that my only out to win this game was by drawing an untapped land, um, I have to search for a forest there, which is a little counterintuitive because of the, the hour and the primeval titan that are in my hand. But I should just be able to recognize that those cards are literally irrelevant, and I'm like casting them is just not going to do anything. So I should have found the forest off of the suspended search, so that my, a exactly mountain could be alive out to kill my opponent. Mm -hmm. um, I just I just punted it, um, and I ended up winning game two and then losing a relatively close game three there. But I definitely think that that match was winnable for me. That yeah. that sounds a lot like the kind of heuristics we were talking about. A last episode, just because like the yeah, your yeah, plan A sure. with this deck really is Hour of Promise or Primeval Titan. Like sometimes I forget that I, I I've played several leagues and sometimes I almost forget I have Scapeshift in the deck. So <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It does feel that way a lot of the time for sure. Yeah, and uh, and kind of like the Hero Six about like okay, attack first, play spells post board. Yeah. Like that's just what's worked for me always. Um, in this deck, you just need to get as many mountains into play as possible. Two green sources is normally fine. But not if you gotta yeah. kill him on six mana. Yep. Right. Not if. Yeah. Not in this particular scenario. So I just didn't play to my out of drawing a land and died. Yeah. So. So that was like, I definitely made mistakes throughout the rest of the tournament, but that was definitely the one that like cost me. 
another mistake that I made was actually on camera where I had uh, five lands in play, an untapped sixth land in my hand, two live Conley Heart Expeditions in play. So I knew that, I, and I had a Titan in hand, so I knew that I could just... So the, the, the correct line was just to not crack either of the expeditions on his end step, mm-hmm. untap, draw, play my sixth land, play Titan, get two Valakits, and then pop both of the um, Conley Hearts for 24 damage. Yep. But I ended up... I can't remember, like, he did something on his turn that kind of threw me off a little bit, where he, he, I was playing against Tron, and I was up a game, and it was game two, and he was pretty much dead no matter what, but he, like, played a Karn, and then, like, went to exile one of my expeditions, so I was, like, prepared to sacrifice it, and then he was like, well, I'm not gonna, sac- I'm not gonna kill one of those, I'm just gonna plus an exile card out of your hand, because you can just pop it anyways, and me trying to kill it doesn't do anything. And I was like, yeah, okay, that's fine. And I just, like, exiled a irrelevant card out of my hand. But then I just, like, popped in step and got two forests off of the expedition anyways. Uh-huh. Uh, which was just wrong. I, like, I just, like, punted lethal on board by doing that. But I ended up just, like, drawing a prismatic omen or something ridiculous to kill him anyways. So, uh, better lucky than good, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, oh well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the deck sequencing is is surprisingly difficult. It is, because there are there are so many different plans, and the sequencing for the scapeshift plan versus the sequencing for the prismatic omen plan versus just our promising like naked is right. Is very different. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you you have to be able to like quickly assess like which plan you're gonna be on for a particular game based on what's in your opener almost sometimes. Yeah. Like sometimes you got to be like, all right, can I afford to fetch for a basic forest here because I either am planning on killing them with scapeshift or with prismatic omen, and the forest is just better because it doesn't cost me two life. Um, or do I have to fetch shock here because I'm on like an hour plan or a Titan plan and I just need as many mountains in play as possible? Just yeah, especially when it's game one and you don't know what they're playing and like like you fetch shock to suspend the search and then they play a turn one goblin guide and you're like, oh, that's that's not what I wanted because my only out was to draw this scape shift, so I should have been playing towards it or whatever. So For sure. Yeah. So definitely a lot of like small things that are you gotta keep track of. Um, but overall, I think the deck was pretty insane. I definitely feel like I've been talking since the tournament with a lot of Scapeshift players, and they seem relatively excited about it, which is cool for me because I'm I'm like new to Scapeshift, but I think that I found like a cool and interesting new version of Scapeshift. And uh, having all of the rest of the Scapeshift players that have been playing it for a long time be excited about this list is definitely makes me feel better about it, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I. When I posted the deck tech, one of the comments on it was, hey, you should probably post this in r slash scapeshift. So, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I guess that's just a, a reality of modern that I probably should have known about is that like people get really excited about their deck and yeah. they uh, are excited when it evolves and like when a new thing comes out in, in your deck, you're going to be excited about it, which isn't like... That's not really my perspective normally. I'm not one to like latch onto a particular deck and then just follow it throughout its existence. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm more of a tournament grinder, so I'm going to be playing whatever I believe to be the best deck for a particular weekend. But it is really cool to see the passion that people have for their for their decks that they have in in the eternal formats for sure. Yeah, it's it's definitely a cool thing that you don't get in the rotating ones. Yeah, but just to kind of finish off the story of my weekend, um, going into the 
14th round. I was live for top eight. I needed to win out. Um, I got matched up against Oliver Tomiko, who was playing Storm, mm-hmm. and he just easily defeated me. So that was kind of like the end of my top eight run, which is a little unfortunate. Um, but just kind of another reality of modern of sometimes you just play against the bad matchups. Yep. But I do think that there are definitely things that I could have done and will be doing in going into Richmond to shore up those matchups. So um, what are what do you think you're doing? Yeah, so I've, I've had a couple of interesting ideas uh, for combo in general. One of them, Storm in particular, and kind of only against Storm, <laughs> is going to be playing Eidolon of the Great Rebel in the sideboard. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and I know it's a little it's a little out there, um, and definitely very strange. But there are a few there are a few specific things that I know about the storm matchup, and like the hate pieces that you need for the storm matchup is that you a need your piece to come down before turn three, mm-hmm. um, because your opponent's often killing you on turn three. So if your hate piece is a third turn thing, you have to have that in addition to some sort of way to kill their guy. So if you can if you can like pair your turn three hate piece with a lightning bolt then you're fine, but oftentimes if they're just like slamming their dude on turn two, passing to you, and then you, if you're on the play, you can like play your turn three hate piece, but if you're on the draw, you're still a turn away from doing that. Yeah. So I really wanted whatever hate piece I'm playing to either come in before that, before turn three. Um, yeah, it just needs to come in before turn three. Yeah, I, think I, the, I think that's right. If my yeah. opponent untaps with one of their guys, I, I assume that I'm dead, and like 80% of the time I, I am right in my assumption. So Yeah, right. Yeah, it is kind of crazy how it's just like you're just so often dead when they untap with that card. Their cards are um, all insane. Either a brawl they... or... Yep. Yeah, for sure. Manamorphose um, for one mana less is just right. one of the most broken cards in Magic. Yeah, so the options I'm looking at are more graveyard hate pieces, which slows them down a lot. If they can't use their graveyard mm-hmm. as another resource, it takes them a lot much longer to kill you. So I think that like Grafdigger's Cage or Rel- more Relics are definitely very effective hate pieces against them. Yep. Potentially Grafdigger's Cage more than Relic, because often with Relic you're priced into holding up a mana on their turn always, mm-hmm. which slows you down a significant amount. Uh, but I think Grafdigger's Cage could be another very good option against them. Leyline of Sanctity is something that I'm still considering. I don't think that they're going to be on the Goblin's plan as much against Scapeshift. It's just going to be too slow, and we run Angers anyways. So I think that potentially a Leyline of Sanctity plan could be very effective. However, if they do end up bringing in Echoing Truth against you, they're just going to be able to go off, and as part of them going off, gifts for uh, Echoing Truth and bounce your thing and then kill you. Right, and the Um, fact that it's uncastable after turn zero is not ideal either realistically uncastable i mean we do run prismatic omen but um probably not something you want to bank on uh and then turn four is just way too late for the most part yeah so um um, any any thought to their their blood moon plan i mean like i've i've found that we're a little light this yeah so that's actually how i lost to 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 in our game two is that um i had a relic out and i was feeling pretty good and i had a lightning bolt for a potential guy and then he just blood mooned me on turn three Mm -hmm. and and i just wasn't even thinking about it because i just never had that experience before against storm it's just not something that i had expected for that one particular um like during that game i just wasn't thinking about it at all Mm -hmm. and like in hindsight i know that that's a card that they play but i just wasn't prepared for it at all and like, didn't fetch around it, A, and B, uh, just didn't have my Reclamation Sage in post-board. Yeah. So I uh, definitely got got by that one, and then just, like, played Drago with Tomiko for 
infinity turns and then eventually died. Yes. So yeah, this is definitely pretty awkward. So yeah, I do think that it's important post board to bring in Reclamation Sage uh, against uh, Storm moving forward, just to hedge against Blood Moon. Yeah, and I I have hit a surprising number of both Blood Moons and Leylines of Sanctity online. So I'm wondering, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just yeah. wondering if it might be worth like going to adding the Primeval or not the Prime the Woodfall Primus back into the sideboard and maybe one more uh, Summoner's Pact or something like that. Just yeah, yeah. I could see that. Um, there, yeah, I mean, there are definitely permanents that, like, yeah, the uh, the Leonis Sanctities have been very annoying against this deck because if you if you're playing against a deck that just has an easy answer to Primeval Titan, then you're just going to lose the Sanctity and are pretty cold to it unless you've brought in your Rex Age. Yep. So definitely something to consider. Uh, I think Rex Age is just the the card that you want. I I wouldn't really go as far as bringing in uh, Woodfall Primus. Okay. I don't think, but definitely something to consider. I hadn't really thought about that until you brought it up, so I don't know. Maybe it's good. I mean, I think that's it, it, why the the mana bases for some of the decks, you know, like the the list that you originally had had the third forest, the third basic forest right. in it, and I think yeah. that's to accommodate the Primus and the sideboard. You know, if you have it, okay. then you want the third forest. If you don't, then you that's don't. That's fair, for sure. Yeah, that was the one change that I made from the list that I was testing with initially was that I ended up going down to two forests and I put in an extra fetch land. Yeah. Which I think is just correct for the build that I had. But yeah, like if we end up playing a deck that needs more green sources, then definitely reasonable to uh, to have that third forest. It wasn't ever like very detrimental for me to have the third forest, but in my experience, the third forest was just, I would rather it have just been a fetch land. Because um, yeah, fetch lands are just so good in the deck when you've got Conley Hearts and Prismatic Omen. Uh, because with Conley Heart, you know, it's just an additional land drop for free. And then with Prismatic Omen, if you have Prismatic Omen and a Valakut out, then your fetch land becomes two bolts instead of just one. Yeah, and that's um, incredible. Yes, which feels very good. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I definitely had like a control opponent on, he was on like 11 or something. I can't remember how exactly, but uh, I think I had maybe like bolted him twice. And then I got, my fifth land was a second Valakut. And then I played a Prismatic Omen. And then <laughs> I pass the turn, and he like plays his fourth land. Like he like shocks himself or something, and passes the turn. Like clearly has cryptic command, and I'm just like fetch land triggers six to you, and he's like oh no, <laughs> yeah. So just, but he like, can actually interact. stop that with cryptic command if he if he figured it out. Oh yeah, I guess that he can just bounce one of the lands, and or, then I'm off. Or the prismatic omen, and you don't have mountains anymore. True, true, yeah. So maybe he just like didn't have Cryptomand or something, yeah, but he was definitely representing some sort of like counterspell interaction. Yeah, and he also uh, might have had Cryptic and just not have totally you know processed that weird interaction because that's that's right, not the right. most obvious. Thing I, I don't know. I think that I probably would have expected him to figure that out. Um, sure. But yeah, definitely, definitely ended up like getting through some sort of counterspells by like, my fetch land being twelve damage. Yeah, so. definitely. I, Pretty sweet. It, it feels really good when they're holding up mana and you don't have to cast spells to win the game anymore. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly against the um, the control decks. Yeah. Um, which I've been playing against a lot lately, um, both at the tournament and online. I've been seeing a lot of like uh, just guy control and blue white control. Yeah. It seems to be it's really picking picked up, up. Popular a lot for sure. And I guess this um, is a good time to transition into like the modern meta that you saw. Yeah. For sure. And, and just the uh, tournament results overall. Yeah, so I think the biggest talks of the tournament were actually the kind of the sweetest deck to come out of this weekend was the green-red, what was that deck? Vengevine deck. 
Um, right. With Goblin Guide and and Faithless Looting in the same deck. Yeah, yeah, that was that was pretty awesome. Uh, I actually played against him in the last round and defeated him, but his uh, his deck was very sweet. I'm very excited to see that. But so just in uh, in the meta game, I saw a lot of Eldrazi Tron. There was a lot of Storm, which was not really good for me in particular. Um, yeah, but... two in the top eight. Yeah, two in the top eight, and then just like a lot of Storm players floating around the top 16. I remember, I think going into the last round, there were four Storm players that were live for top eight, mm -hmm. or at least live for X and three, um, only a few of which made top eight. But yeah, very interesting to see that. I mean, I think that deck is very good, but I think that it was just like very well positioned this weekend, because the other storyline of the weekend was how poorly Death Shadow did overall. Right. I think that Jessup was really the only one who could just ever win with that deck over the weekend. <laughs> uh, everybody else that I knew personally playing Death Shadow got crushed, and uh, I just didn't really see it or play against it at all that weekend, which was interesting. Yeah, and I only, think that... only one other in the, or two others in the top 32, which is, is not what we've seen really. Yeah, for sure. I think that kind of the reason for that was, and like I've played a lot of Death Shadow, and I decided not to play it this weekend, mm -hmm. and because I've kind of like have been having these thoughts coming into uh, about Modern, I think that the reality is that like Death Shadow is clearly the most powerful deck in Modern, um, in terms of like consistency and just like the things that it's doing are very busted, mm -hmm. and it's like a fair deck, right? So you'd think that it's hard to hate out, but the reality is that. There are a lot of cards that people are bringing that Death Shadow really, really struggles against. Um, things like Graveyard Hate, like Leyline of the Void, or um, or just Chalice, just the Relic, or like Chalice of the Void, or a bunch of other people are playing. What's that card? The two-two double strike protection from Black yeah, Mirror and Crusader. Green card, Green Crusader. Like everybody has all these bullets. Chameleon Colossus. Um, I think that <laughs> no matter what deck you brought to Cincinnati you had a plan for Death Shadow. Like, the argument normally is like, oh, Modern is such a wide and diverse format, people are just going to play whatever they want. And that's still true. However, whatever they want included some sort of plan or bullet for Death Shadow. Um, and I think that despite Death Shadow being such a powerful deck, it's not immune to the hate that exists. Right. And it's so popular right now that everybody's just prepared for it. So I'm, I'm honestly just not surprised to see it not have a good weekend. In, in such a wide open format, you know, why would you bring the deck that people are actively preparing for? There's, there's so many other choices now. Yeah, I think that there are definitely a lot of excellent options. So right, definitely one of the storylines out of this weekend was Death Shadow not really showing up, or just at least not having the results that they wanted. Yeah. Yeah, and then that opens the door for exactly for decks like Storm that that beat a lot of the decks in Modern. Uh, yes, right. So I guess that's how we got kind of on that conversation topic is that Storm had a good weekend because Storm has a bad Death Shadow matchup, but all the Death Shadow players were having a rough tournament, so the Storm players were actually allowed to thrive through that, and uh, you know that definitely was was very good for them. Most of the other decks in the format, Storm is one of your scariest matchups. So I I definitely. I think this might be a good time for Storm if, if Death Shadow continues to underperform. Yeah, for sure. You know, and who knows, like maybe next weekend people are just off the Death Shadow hate and then Death Shadow just crushes everything, but I don't know. I think that I'm actually planning on cutting the Chameleon classes from my deck. Not because I don't think a certain number of players are going to just like be off Death Shadow, but just because uh, I think that that match is probably good enough for my version of Scapeshift that it, it's just not necessary. 
Yeah. Um, and I want more things for cards like Storm. So, yeah, um, I I agree. The the Death Shadow matchups that I played, like your your active plan, just felt very strong against them. Uh, without, yeah. Without responding to their deck too much. Uh, on that note, what so what is your sideboarding? plan look like because i've been mostly taking out the expeditions for a few cards like what what's your like main sort of side out so side in that's been a pretty common question for me uh, out of everybody that's wanted to ask me about the deck is that they are keep on asking how i sideboard and they've been definitely asking for like exact like plans and particular matchups mm-hmm. um which isn't, you know, it's modern. It's not really something I can realistically do for all the decks. But right. I can give you this piece of advice that I think will go a long way. With this deck in particular, it's best to assess, like, you know, you already know which cards are coming in, right? You've you've put those cards in your sideboard for a reason. Like, you know when you need to bring in your Chameleon Colossus. You know when you need to bring in your Bolts and your Angers. You know when you bring in your Relics and stuff. So, like, boarding in stuff isn't really that tough to figure out i don't think i mean maybe i'm wrong and people are struggling to figure that out but no I think the that hard part is definitely what to take out the hard part in my mind is understanding what pieces need to come out of the deck to accommodate for those pieces and uh what i've been telling everybody is that there are some like pretty interesting guidelines that you can follow to figure that out um depending on the matchup that you're playing against you need to figure out what kind of role you're taking on and how your opponent is trying to interact with your strategy. Mm-hmm. So if your opponent is playing things like discard spells or counter spells or things that are interacting with your payoff spells, then you're then in, in general that matchup is going to go slower. So you don't really need as much ramp spells in those matchups, mm-hmm. but you want to have that density of payoff in your deck. Sure. So you want to be cutting your ramp spells. So you can cut your far seeks. You can cut some. Colony Heart Expeditions. That's so right. In the in the matchups where your opponent's interacting with you a lot and interacting with your spells a lot, you can shave on the the ramp spells because, in general, you want your you want your top decks to be as live as possible. So mm-hmm. that when they run out of counter spells or discard spells or anything, you can draw into those like heavy hitting spells that are just going to end the game. Yep. On the other end of that spectrum, in the matchups that are very linear and fast and uh, non-interactive, you want to be shaving on some of those payoff spells because in general in those matchups, and these are things like burn or like other linear aggro decks or other combo decks or something that just like aren't interacting with your spells as much, you can actually shave on like some number of titans or uh, hour of promise or escape shift mm-hmm. because you only really need one of those to resolve to win the game, right? So you don't need to draw a, a large number of those cards. But you do need to be as fast as possible, so you need to keep in all of your ramp spells. Yeah, and in um, those matchups, I've mostly been keeping in all of the scape shifts and shaving on the other. Yeah, scape shifts pretty ones. much never comes out in my experience. It's just kind of the best payoff spell almost, because it, it often is just dealing the most damage on the spot and killing them. Mm-hmm. But I've definitely trimmed. I've gone down to like two titans. I've gone down to. I think the lowest I've gone down on like payoff has been just like two titans in three hours or something. So uh, it is important that, to note that you can do that um, and still be fine. Yeah, but like, you know, when you're cutting uh, when you're cutting the ramp spells, I think that in general, Farseek is typically the first one to go. Um, and then whenever you're cutting Farseeks or ramp spells in general, I like shaving on some number of expeditions because those, like, in order to be effective with those, you need to be... Um, ramping and like making those trigger earlier than schedule yeah but search for tomorrow never comes out of the deck 
So I've yeah, I've never cut search for tomorrow. Um, I think it's just the best strand as well. Yep, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've never cut uh, Steve. Uh, <laughs> no, definitely uh, not. Secure tribe builder. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, so I think that that's kind of like a general way to approach how to sideboard is to just like understand how your opponent is interacting with you and how to make your deck as resilient as possible to that as possible. And I think that's easier to tell people than like, you know, giving them a plus X minus X sideboard guide. Um, yeah. Because it is modern and, you know, I can definitely do that for all the tier one decks, but you're going to face things that are like tier two or tier three. And if you have that knowledge of like what's important in sideboarding, I think that you're going to do better overall than me telling you exactly like, you know, do this in this matchup, do this in that matchup. Uh, this way you can kind of understand the logic behind it and be able to make your own decisions for when you play a matchup that's not as popular, right? Yeah. Um, Teach Amanda Fish is definitely the, the philosophy yeah, right. that works here, I think. So I think, yeah, I think that I think that I, that gives out uh, a pretty good idea of, of what's important when you're sideboarding with this particular deck. Because it is pretty counterintuitive and a lot of the feedback that I've gotten is like, I've been playing your deck and it seems very insane and like I'm winning all my game ones, but I just don't know how to sideboard at all. So help. Uh, there you go, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think if people have been asking about it, then we should definitely give the people what they want. So that's probably sure. helpful. So just to talk about the meta a little bit, pretty interesting that we had an Eldrazi Tron mirror in the finals, especially because <laughs> like that top eight looks relatively hostile to Eldrazi Tron. So I, you know, with... Merfolk, a couple of Storm decks, uh, Affinity is is pretty solid against Eldrazi Tron. But boy, these Tron decks just sort of muscled right through that and, and didn't have a problem. Yeah, um, the, the the surprising upsets for me in the top eight were Merfolk losing to a Tron deck. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not sure, I can't remember exactly what Affinity lost to, but Affinity should be pretty favored against Eldrazi. Eldrazi Tron in particular. I, I think that Tron has a good matchup against Storm. Just because of the chalices and stuff sure, and the relics that, that they play. They just have a lot of pieces that can really shut down the Storm player and what they're trying to do. But I think that, you know, Eldrazi Tron has an excellent matchup against, uh, or maybe not an excellent matchup, but just like slightly favorable against Rossum's Jeskai deck and Death Shadow. Mm -hmm. um, is it like the, the Tron decks have definitely evolved to beat the Shadow deck, and the Shadow deck hasn't quite evolved in such a way that makes it favorable, again, against Eldrazi Tron. Right. The um, Shadow decks adopted Ceremonious Rejection, the Tron decks brought in Cavern of Souls, and then there hasn't been a lot of movement since then. So, yeah, right. So it's so, a little stuck in, in that, like, probably 53, 54, 55% in Eldrazi Tron's favor. Right. So I, I just think it's one of those, like, very inherently powerful decks that just are slightly favored against a, a large percentage of the field. Um, so... You know, I think that Eldrazi Tron is probably an excellent choice for for the tournaments coming up. I think oh. that we're definitely going to see an influx in mana base hate, mm -hmm. which will be interesting. At least to, we're, we're probably going to see a lot more Blood Moons, a lot more Ghost Quarters, um, maybe some Tech Edges, stuff like that coming into Richmond. So uh, something to look out for, I guess. But Yeah, uh, and definitely not the most ideal circumstances for Valakut. Uh, yeah, for, like from a Valka's perspective, that's not exactly what I want. Uh, however, if the if people if more people decide to play Eldrazi Tron as opposed sure. to try to beat Eldrazi Tron, that's up. a that's an excellent choice for uh, for Valka, <laughs> you know, because uh, I think that Valka has a, just a great matchup against any of the Tron variants. So yeah, yeah. and 
this year of Alakite build, I think, is better against the, not necessarily the Blood Moon type land hate, but against the Ghost Quarter and Tech Edge kind of land hate, just because of yeah, the density. Yeah, trying to, like, take me off of a land drop just has not really been super effective Yeah, in my experience. I, like, I've been able to plow through that pretty consistently. Um, only ever struggling against, like, a Leonin Arbiter as, like, mana destruction. Because that, that can be tough for sure. But other than that, it's been fine. So. Definitely. Um, all right, so, and so that was your teammate, John Rossum, uh, yeah. in this amazing game. Yeah, we talk about him. He's, yeah. uh, he's been on fire lately. The past three weekends, he's just had ridiculously good success in <laughs> a second-place finish in the Open a couple weeks ago, a second-place finish in the Standard Classic a couple weeks, uh, or last tournament, and then, yeah, a top-four finish here in uh, Syracuse. He's one of those guys that's just kind of never satisfied with anything but first place. So uh, he's still he's still got that fire and he's still like digging for it. So you know I think that he's he's definitely going after it. But he he's been crushing it lately. So you know shout out to him. Yeah. So any any knowledge from him about uh, just guy control? What what's up with that? Because it's a it's a <laughs> well, sweet deck. All, it's not one that uh, I would normally choose. But he doesn't really like it when people call it a control deck. Uh, right. It's not. So, and yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's got all these burn spells and Geist of St. Traff, so it, it absolutely right. is not. He uh, he was calling it Jeskai Geist throughout the weekend, and he was definitely talking about how he is closer to a burn deck than anything else, um, he believes. Mm -hmm. like he, it's, it's, it's essentially just a counter burn tempo deck, yep. where he's trying to keep you off of doing your thing long enough for him to be able to close out the game quickly with Spell Quellers or... Um, Snapcaster Mages or just burn spells to the face or some combination of all those things. Yeah, it's almost uh, the platonic ideal of a spell queller deck, I think. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, I think that he, I think that the deck is just like maybe Jeskai Spell Queller is the best name for it, <laughs> um, because uh, he he was definitely playing four spell quellers and only like two guys in the main. Um, but I know that moving forward, he's going to try to be pushing that plan even further. I think that he's going to be playing more geists moving forward, maybe three or four. Mm -hmm. um, he said that he's cutting the um, the dragon out of the main deck. Oh, that's um, too bad. I, but I thought the, that dragon was the word that was going to come out of your mouth. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, the dragon is sweet, I'm not going to lie. And if you if your metagame has a lot of lingering souls in it, mm -hmm. then, I mean, definitely keep it in. But <laughs> his, logic, his logic in deck building was kind of counterintuitive. Or not counterintuitive, but just... I think wrong in a certain sense where he was like, yeah, I'm only playing two geists because I just like don't really want to be drawing multiples of that card. But a five mana card is probably fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it just made the deck a little too funky sometimes. And yeah. I, I definitely saw him sticking on four lands a lot and just like not being able to cast it or whatever. And you always want a geist in play if you can have one. Right. Yeah. And I think that whenever you cast a geist, he said that he whenever he casts a guy on turn three, he just like won a turn or two later every time. Um, so I think that's probably fine. Uh, putting a, a few more redundant copies in there. Um, I think three might be the number that he wants to land on, but he was talking about going all the way up to four. But I don't know about that. But you know. Yeah, I mean it's it's real hard to lose unless they deal with it. So. Oh maybe. yeah. Sure. I. Uh... Just, just in case he's listening to this episode, I do have the word control in in scare quotes in our uh, show notes. So, <laughs> yeah, I was looking at that. Yeah, yeah. He uh, and they called it control on coverage as well. Um, I think that people are just used to seeing he looks his bolts paths 
cryptic command uh, in a Jeskai deck and just assuming that it's control deck. Mm -hmm. But just given the way that I saw it play out every time and given the way that he actively tries to play it, uh, I, I think it's definitely closer to a, a burn deck. And I think one like moment that really solidified that for me was in the quarterfinals he played against Dan Musser and Dan played a turn two Mattery Shaper and John just bolts him. <laughs> like, no thanks, right? yep. um, he's just like yeah instant fetch shock bolt you and I was like alright John understands something that probably most everybody else doesn't about this deck where John is particularly in the um, the Tron matchup uh, John just wants to end that game as quickly as possible because Tron just has draws that um, are very hard to keep up with and John is m much more inclined to try to keep the Dan off of actual Tron so that he like doesn't have that ridiculous man advantage because uh, John was talking about how in that matchup if he, he ever just like draws natural Tron it's very difficult for for um, the Jeskai deck to keep up yeah but if if they're like struggling on like four or five mana then the Jeskai deck is just going to be able to tempo them out of the game pretty easily uh, I think that like trying to shorten their the the length of that game as as much as possible is, is probably beneficial for the Jeskai deck there and that's kind of the story of a lot of the match, a lot of different decks matchups with Tron. I think is if they get to their Tron real quickly, you can't win. If if they don't get there, then your cards are more efficient and stronger than theirs. So yes, yeah, for sure. Uh, I think that I also had that experience a lot playing against Tron, where like I played against green red Tron or maybe green black Tron like twice in the tournament. Mm -hmm. um, green X Tron or just like non Eldrazi form right, of Tron. Classic Tron. And the, the only way that I could see myself feasibly losing that matchup if, is if they played exactly turn three Karn, Exile Your Land. Yeah. Um, like, if that's the scenario, then I'm probably going to lose, but I could pretty much beat anything else. Like, I played against a guy who went, like, turn four Ugin. No, yeah, turn four Ugin into turn five uh, Ulamog, and I just, like, easily killed him the next turn. <laughs> um, yeah, Ugin so... is less powerful against the Velikid deck. Yeah, he was like, all right, Ugin, uh, bolt you. And I was like, right, okay. <laughs> eight mana, two lightning bolts. That's right. Yeah, that's not the yeah. most efficient card in the world. Yeah. But I was pretty proud of myself that game where I played around him having an Ulamog. Mm -hmm. And I, I actually fetched out, I played Hour of Promise, and I fetched out two green sources instead of two Valkits because mm -hmm. I just needed to be able to resolve my scape shift the next turn. So I just like found two forests with my Hour of Promise, which is pretty counterintuitive, because I think I could have like bolted down the Ugin or something. Um, but I just didn't care about that at all, and I wanted to play around him taking away my green sources with his Ulamog, which yeah. he was unable to do, and then I killed him. So. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the opposite of your your misplay you talked about earlier. Like you, you focused in on what was actually important in that game, not what seems important, which is the giant right, Planeswalker. Right, yeah. So yeah, I mean, if I, I guess if I'm suggesting one um, just like mental state or whatever for playing the Scapeshift deck in particular is that you really need to sit down and think about all of the sequencing decisions and the consequences of you doing a certain thing. So just like take that extra second or two to take a deep breath and then like think through the consequences of like, okay, how do I need to sequence my land because what's important in this particular game? Um, I think that whenever I didn't do that, I, I made mistakes. And whenever I just kind of gave myself the extra moment to um, think about what was actually important, uh, I was able to play much better. Cool. Well, um, I think that may be all we need to talk about for modern, unless you have anything in particular. 
No, I think that, that pretty much covers it. I've been talking a lot about the Scapeshift deck for the past couple of days, so yeah. I'm sure that, you know, that's all kind of been mixed up a little bit. But uh, but yeah, I mean, the deck is sweet. I'm going to continue playing with it in Richmond and throughout this week. I'm going to be messing with the sideboard a bit. I think that I'm there's a potential that I play Eidolon of the Great Revel in my sideboard in Richmond, which will be <laughs> interesting. Yep, that but would be sweet. If, I, if I'm actually that worried about Storm, then, you know... I, mean, I think that's probably the best card for it. As so. I recall, uh, during that spoiler season, when it first got spoiled, the response was mostly like, oh, cool, seems like a, a powerful sideboard card against Storm. Uh, like, it, you know, comparing it to Pyrostatic Pillar or something like that, and it turns out that the card just does a million damage to your opponent. Uh, so it, you know, not really considered as a sideboard card for that anymore because it's it's a real card, but it's certainly an effective sideboard card against Storm, so I'd, I'd be interested to see how that works out. Yeah, for sure. And maybe just something that they won't expect, right? Like, nobody's really going to have bolts in against me post-board, so... Well, and if they do, uh, that's that's okay for you, too. Right, yeah, like, you know, so... Um, yeah, so some tweaking to be doing, for sure, but um, definitely excited about this Scapeshift deck in particular moving forward, so, yeah. Cool, awesome. Um, so we should talk about Standard a little bit, not... Not as much stuff going on in it, I guess. Uh, from what I've seen, the format has stabilized a little bit. You know, if, if your interpretation of the format is different from mine, then definitely let me know. But I've played a couple of leagues, uh, and then I've just obviously paid attention to all of the lists that are coming out from various places. Mostly seems like the format is built upon responding to Mono Red. Oh, yeah. The, the best decks are really uh, black-green and zombies are showing up a lot. The black-green decks often have Liliana's in the main deck. Uh, there's a lot of Kalidas's running around. Uh, I think you really see the biggest difference in people's choices of two drops. There are a lot of Sylvan Advocates in these black-green decks. The mono-black Eldrazi deck has seen a couple of finishes, including uh, in the standard classic. That deck runs main deck Gifted Aetherborn, which is obviously incredible against mono-red. So... There's a lot of these kind of like mid-rangey, bulky creature decks that beat up on the mono-red decks, and then you just want to be able to be, I guess, the the mid-rangey, bulky creature deck that's a little bit bigger than the other ones, but not so big that you don't have a, your game plan against mono-red anymore. Like, that seems to be where we're at right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that definitely, like, maybe even Sylvan Advocate is kind of like the story of the tournament, right? Mm -hmm. Sylvan Advocate was like the deck that, or the the card that Brad Nelson and his brother decided to put in their black green deck, and kind of like symbolizes the plan that everybody's trying to be on, where everybody's playing now these like green or black, like slightly bigger mid rangey aggressive decks um, that are really good at preying on the red decks, like you were saying. So yep. going into the weekend, my two choices were definitely black green and zombies for what I would have played. My team. So not everybody from Lotus Box ended up going to Syracuse. Some people split off and went to Minneapolis instead. For for whatever reason, some people just were more excited about Standard, or Syracuse was just a little too far away from them. And it, it remains but, Standard remains a pretty good format. Like like oh, I, yeah, I summed sure. it up in a couple of words, but I think these are cool developments, and the games are mostly really fun to watch. So absolutely, yeah. Um, I think that it was kind of proven that Mono Red was really it. it it is not going to be such an impressive force on the on format. Definitely. Like it'll, it'll definitely push some things out, and some things won't be able to really thrive, like blue red control. But uh, I still think the format is very healthy. Uh, yeah, I going into the weekend, um, my teammates were talking about what they were going to play. My suggestion was definitely black green. I think that black green has an excellent red matchup. 
I think that it was the best performing deck at the Pro Tour percentage wise. And I think that it, it definitely, I was not surprised to see it, I, in my mind, perform the best in uh, Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that it had four decks, four yeah, four decks in the top eight. Yeah. Um, two, and Brett, two of Brett which and his brother, which is great. super cool and, and good. Yeah, for them. that was a pretty sweet storyline to come out of the weekend. I mean, you know, everybody knows that Brad and his brother are just insane Magic players, so it's kind of cool to see them kind of taking on a tournament together. And not to not to like put put Corey as second fiddle, like like he's a yeah he's a very legitimate Magic player who deserves his name to be recognized as well. So Brad and Corey, oh yeah. Uh, Right. Yeah, and their build was was excellent. Catacomb Sifters, you know, have been floating around sometimes in black-green decks. I think it's just great in black-green right now. Yeah, and, and the, the, the extra bodies, like, even just the 1-1 is still a card against uh, red most of the time, so... Mm-hmm. And it also, uh, you know, when they're going kind of bigger against you, like, Sylvan Advocate's a 4-5 and does not die to Glorybringer. So I, I think just the, the cards match up really well against whatever they're doing. Uh, out of the Ramunap deck. Yeah, and then there was also the the black red mid range deck that kind of came out of the weekend, which was just like another black based Liliana the Last Hope Kalidas deck that was really just kind of there to beat up on the red decks. Yeah. So pretty interesting to see that for sure. I've talked about this deck a little bit before, and I'm I'm definitely a fan of it, and I do like those. Again, you know, this deck put in the gifted Etherborns, where a lot of the other lists had uh, glint sleeve siphoners, and it's just more important to keep up on turn two rather than set up. You know, siphoner is helpful for like making land drops and that sort of thing, but the Etherborn also helps prolong the game to where you can start casting your Goblin Dark Dwellers and really getting ahead. Yeah, yeah. Aetherborn really just, like, very, very must-kill threat uh, if you're playing red. So pretty good at kind of keeping, progressing the game into the the late stages where you really want to be with this mid-range deck. Yep. And worst case, you know, everybody else is playing these bulky creature decks, and you can trade your gifted Aetherborn for whatever their two or three drop is. And, you know, maybe not the best thing in the world, but it's certainly, you're going card for card with them, so. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, and then another note that you said was that Fatal Push has really made a huge resurgence on in popularity and effectiveness, I think. Mm-hmm. We had actually seen in kind of standard before Mono Red really exploded, Fatal Push as a card was really just not where you wanted to be. Like everybody was playing all these like three drop creatures or things that just like weren't easily Fatal Pushed, like Glorybringers and stuff. Like we were seeing like these Teamer Energy decks where Fatal Push was just kind of medium. But now people are definitely playing things like Zombies and Marty Vehicles and Green Black Constrictor and Mono Red, where Fatal Push is just insane. It's just the the best removal spell and the best positioned removal spell right now, for sure. So yeah, I agree. And and that, in combination with Grasp of Darkness, really covers a ton of your bases, because Grasp will kill the Hazarettes, it'll kill the Glorybringers, uh, and people aren't going... There's not that much rampant stuff. There's a lot fewer Torrential Gear Hulks to kill. Uh, so you mm-hmm. don't need to go super big with your removal spells. And that, that Fatal Push-Grasp combo gets you a lot of mileage, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a little more info from the Classic in Syracuse. A friend of mine, Matt Tumovich, uh, and a few of his friends played this uh, Mono Black Eldrazi deck. That deck was like very sweet and I think like pretty well positioned. It had those like key pieces that we were talking about in like the Kalidas and the Liliana's preying on mono red and stuff yep i don't really expect to see a lot of that deck moving forward because i i just don't think that it's going to be a tier one deck moving forward but i think it was just like a very good choice for this particular weekend preying on 
the it because it, it kind of had the opportunity to prey on both mono red and some of these control decks or not control decks uh, mid-range decks yeah uh, like it, it had a very good matchup against black green uh and against zombies in addition to having a good matchup against red so if that's what we're going to continue to see maybe we'll see more of this black eldrazi deck but i'm, I'm not sure what do you think we'll see that that sort of pushes it out it's just uh, it's just really poor against like the ramp strategies and the control strategies. I don't think that it has the resiliency that it needs to be able to push through those. Sure. But who knows? Maybe maybe it's just much better than I'm giving it credit for. So. Yeah, I mean, it it sort of has that weird problem playing against it, seeing it played. It's hard to put into words, but just all of the standard decks with a number of Eldrazi in them. There's just this weird like clunkiness to them that's that's really hard yeah. to describe. Just like right. sometimes you get right. two reality smashers in your hand and you you miss on your fifth land for one turn, and even though they have haste, now you're just not really able to put them into play and attack or whatever happens. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that we're so used to all of these Eldrazi creatures being discounted in yeah. modern that like you know playing them in a fair setting in standard just feels strange. That might be like part of the the reaction you're experiencing. And I will say, I'm sure Matt knows more about this deck than I do, but I cannot get behind uh, four Reality Smasher, three Thought Not Seer in a Eldrazi <laughs> yeah. deck. Yeah, I didn't ask him too much about the deck in particular, and I actually hadn't like seen the deck list out. Like I watched him play over the course of the weekend, but I I, I hadn't looked at a deck list or anything. But yeah, some of these numbers are pretty interesting. Like two Dreadwander, three Thought Not Seer. This just like you know, very counterintuitive and not what I not what I would have expected. Yeah, definitely. Um, the Dreadwanderers are. I feel like that might be a sideboard card for this deck or something like that. To if you're playing against a bigger deck and you just want to have one drops available, uh, I'm not yeah. sure what the hedging is is there, but I think that it was a nod to control, mm-hmm. where he just wanted a threat that was very resilient, but at the same time, I, I think if you're trying to face control, you're better off just like having more discard like he is running two lay bears and one transgress Mm -hmm. and a doomfall so maybe he's just like full on that slot but i don't know yeah interesting yeah Yeah. so so if these decks continue to drive red you know i think red's going to be part of the metagame no matter how many of these decks are around because um because just red is just so powerful right very powerful yeah but if they manage to reduce it to a much less significant part of the metagame, then do we think that ramp might be showing up or more control decks or something like that? The only the only control deck that I've seen much of recently is the uh, blue-white with the, like, triple second sun as win conditions in it. Um, yeah, Dan Ward's deck from the Grand Prix. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that deck was, I think, very well positioned as well, just because it had all of this... It was like a control deck, but it had all this life gain, so it, it didn't just immediately crumble to the red decks that normally prey on the control deck. Mm-hmm. I think that's still not a great matchup for it, but I think Pro- it's... Probably not a great matchup, but I think it definitely has more play than, say, the the blue-red. Yeah, uh, definitely. Right, because you, you don't go down to four and then can never lose the game, or can never win the game, but you can, you can get your life total back up some. Uh, right, but I think and gain, like if you get to the point where you're gaining seven life with that deck yep. against red, as long as you've killed their board for the most part, they're they're really trying to squeak out incremental damage with their like sacri- paying four mana to sacrifice a land drop, and like if if that's how they're trying to get in those last four damage, 
then you gaining seven life is really tough for them. Yeah, I think you definitely have a plan. I think the main reason the deck is good is, like, zombies can't beat it, and I think green-black struggles as well. The, just the fumigates are so good against you, and, and I think it really goes over the top of these creature decks. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and then the, the ramp deck as well kind of has a little room to evolve a little bit to the mono-red metagame. I saw some people playing Jotty Offshoots in the ramp deck in the sideboard, yep. which was very pretty sweet. Just like an O3 blocker that also lets you gain a bunch of life over the course of the of the game by casting ramp spells and stuff and just making you land drops. So I think that was definitely another kind of cool option that I saw another deck have to kind of evolve a little bit. Yeah, and the Druids of the Cowl I like as well. as a Yeah, yeah, for sure ramp spell and blocker that they have to if they can remove it they have to spend a two mana removal spell to remove it which is not where they want to be that early in the game yeah absolutely so anything else you wanted to talk about from standard well the only thing is i wanted to mention this insane naya humans deck from the top eight of the classic i don't know if you've seen this Um, yeah yeah (laughs) just the gutsiest mana base (laughs) i've ever seen so good for him I will not be playing this deck, but, but you know, this is Glorybound Initiate Henward Garrison for Heron's Grace Champion, which is the 4-mana 3-3 three, three flash lifelink that when it comes into play gives you humans plus 1, plus 1, and lifelink until end of turn. Four Voltaic Brawlers, like like just all the good humans who cares what color they are, a couple of Avacyns, a couple of Hazarets. So anyways, the deck is really sweet. But I, I can't imagine. Yeah, something the deck. just really satisfying at looking at a deck list and seeing 33 creatures and four spells, yep. and those four spells being a braid. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty pretty sweet deck. Like if you if your mana base works out and you're curving out with these creatures, I think that the deck is definitely very very powerful. Just maybe a little concerned about the consistency issue. Yeah, um, he's also got two handward battlements in his three yep. color aggro deck in standard. So I don't. I don't think that part is workable, certainly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. But, I mean, you know, good for him uh, yeah, for for taking that tur- to, a, to a top eight in the Classic, for sure. I'm, I'm sure um, he had but yeah, a something, ton of something fun. very interesting looking at, you know, a fourth Raven Inspector curving into four Voltaic Brawlers. <laughs> Just being like, all right, well, I hope you draw your inspiring advantages because I'm not sure how else that's going to work out. Ether Hub all day long. <laughs> oh, man. With uh, just trying to get the energy off of the brawlers and stuff. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, so really, the only other thing, yeah, that's that's all I got for standard right now. The only other thing is we got some some uh, commander spoilers, some cat spoilers. Uh, yeah, and hopefully you can tell me a little bit about these because I I've seen a couple of these pop up on like social media and stuff, but I I haven't really looked too closely into them. This is from the newest commander set is that yeah, right yeah so the, okay. they'd only be legacy legal which i think pretty much yeah. makes them unplayable right from the beginning but i mean well i mean you never know we've, we've definitely seen some some legacy impact from commander stuff in the recent past you know leovold has taken over legacy for the most part That's and true. like containment priest and and uh true name nemesis were all commander cards yep. so Definitely um, something to keep an eye out on if you're a legacy player. And these these guys are definitely over budgeted for their mana cost. Uh, I don't think either of these creatures could be printed for standard, which is uh, a prerequisite for legacy play, really. Um, yeah, yeah. So we've got Alms Collector, which is three and a white for a three four flash. If an opponent would draw two or more cards, instead you and that player each draw a card. 
So it's kind of a Notion Thief kind of effect, but I think mm -hmm. that Notion Thief is a card that's way better in the white decks right than than in the blue decks. Uh, and I'm I'm not going to pretend that I know Legacy inside and out or anything like that. But, you know, a creature that makes them unable to cast Brainstorm, uh unable to cast I guess that's that's really the main card in Legacy that draws more than one card at a time. But but a creature that makes your opponent unable to cast Brainstorm or any other card drawing card is much better as a white card than as a blue card, I think. Just because that may be something that some sort of Death and Taxes list is interested in. Although you never want to put your Vial up to four, so I think that, that makes this card probably never make the cut. But... I don't know. So, yeah, things, uh, it, particularly in Legacy, things have to be very, very, very powerful at four or five yeah. mana to, to have an impact. The uh, But it is white, so yeah. it, it does kind of slide into the one deck that could potentially run a four-drop creature and and have that be effective, which is Death and Taxes, because that, that deck is trying to push the fair decks into a later game. Like, we've seen, what was the card that made somebody the monarch and you can draw extra cards oh so there's there's a white four mana two two like a jail keeper or something right i'm trying to remember the name of uh it. that would let you hold on let me, uh, let me actually pull it up essentially it was a card that death tax is adopted as a way to beat miracles because um what the card did effectively was it, it when it came into play you became the monarch and whoever the monarch was got to draw an extra card every turn um, and the way, but you could actually steal being the monarch from the other player by attacking them and dealing them damage with the creature. But in the Miracles matchup, way back when, that just like wasn't a thing that Miracles players were ever trying to do. It, it essentially just allowed the Death Attacks player to kind of go over the top of the Miracles deck in a certain way. So that was definitely an example of like a four mana commander or yeah, commander card that conspiracy ended up card. Yeah, conspiracy. Oh yeah. yeah, there we go. So it's it's palace so, jailer. Um, and, and so yeah, if, yeah. Some of these are hilarious. I, I heard somebody talking about a six five four mana flying haster, or something like that. Uh, oh, here it is. The ter territorial hellkite. Uh -huh. It's a flying six mana or four mana six five flying haster. And it's funny how like they could print that in these commander sets, but just like wouldn't ever come close to being able to print that in the standard. Yeah, definitely not. Yeah, so what is this guy? Four mana six five flying haste. At the beginning of combat on your turn, choose an opponent at random that territorial hellkite didn't attack during your last combat. It's so it so in, in one on one, it's just a four mana six five flying haste. Yeah, that could not be printed in standard. Certainly, <laughs> that, that is a sweet card, but I think the uh, like blood moon. The, the red stompy decks have moved past those just, like, random giant cheap creatures. Yeah, I mean, that is a good point, though. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about um, a red stompy deck being able to top that just as a very, very fast win con. So Yeah, I mean, you'd have to play it over, like, your Chandra's or something like that, which, I mean... Sure. Legacy's weird, who knows? Yeah. I think most of the more effective stompy decks in Legacy have been... Um, like the Through the Breach, Turbo, Blood Moon, Through the Breach decks that are trying to do very powerful things. And I think Chandra is like really good as an additional way of like curving into your Infernal Titan or your Combustible Gear Hulk or something like that. Yeah. So it's hard to... Might not really want to leave that plan. Definitely not. Not for just a big dude that, that dies to Swords to Plowshares. I don't think that's... Um, but yeah, I, I think that... You know, I haven't really looked too much into the commander stuff, but some of the cat stuff looks pretty sweet. Yeah, and the only other guy that I noticed immediately 
as a possibility was Stalking Leonin, which is two and a white for a 3-3. Three, three. When Stalking Leonin enters the battlefield, you secretly choose an opponent. Uh, and then you re the cost for its ability is reveal the player you chose, exile target creature that's attacking to you, you if it's controlled by the chosen player, activate this ability only once. So, I mean, basically, it's just a very efficient Shriek Maw kind of effect. Uh, three mana, three, three, that once per game, uh, you can exile a creature that's attacking you. Uh, if you blink it, you get to do that again. Uh, you don't have to use the removal ability until... I mean, they have to be attacking you, but you also don't have to choose the creature until later on. So you could play this on an empty board or vial it in onto an empty board or vial it in when they're attacking you and still still get their guy. Uh, I, I don't know. You know, not a ton of these games come down to you have creatures and they have creatures and you would like to remove one and add one to your board. But if that's a thing that matters, then this is just an incredibly efficient way to do that. So possibility, unlikely, but it's, you know, it's pretty cheap and pretty powerful. It does exile. Um, yeah, I think that uh, it's it's definitely also like a very well-designed commander card. Because don't you secretly choose a player and then get to reveal that at a certain time? I can see how that could be a very fun little mini game in a uh, commander game for sure. Oh yeah, it's certainly cute design, um, but in one on one, the secret is not very secret. Oh yeah, uh, I'm gonna pick you. Um, I'll just go ahead and tell you. <laughs> you can't, you can't tell them. You can't tell them because that's the that's your cost that you pay. So if you tell them, I think you're activating the ability. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I'd love to see a judge rule on that one. I guess you Jeez. can't you can't activate it unless there's a creature attacking you. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 There we go. That's funny. But who knows, man? All right. Well. Yeah. I think that's all we need to talk about today. Yeah. Got uh, anything else? The Syracuse covered some standard. Um, next weekend, I'm going to be going to Richmond. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's just more of the same in terms of um, uh, what I'm playing. I'm definitely just going to tune up the same list that I played in last weekend in Syracuse and, you know, take another crack at it. See if I can see if I can uh, break into the top of this one. Yeah. I was definitely very close last time. So I'm going to try to make it. If I can make it, I'm going to try to play pretty much whatever 75 you're playing. And yeah. <laughs> nice. Okay, perfect. Let's do it. All right. All right. Well, I guess tune in next time and hear how that one went.